God's Word, the book of Romans. We're going to move forward a little bit while still doing a little bit of overlap. Romans chapter 1, I'll begin reading in verse 5 and read to verse 15. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, and I'll read to verse 15. Through him, that is Christ, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by some means, now at last, I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise, so as much as is in me. I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Thus far the reading of God's word, you may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, our longing, our desire is of course that we might better understand your word. And this connected to it that we might not only be hearers of it, but doers of it. And so grant to us by your spirit, not only minds that well reason, but hearts that love to do your will, that your grace, your glory, your beauty would loom large in our hearts, that you would turn our hearts away from the things of this world, not because they are vain in and of themselves, but because, Lord, oftentimes our affections are tainted by sin and idolatry. And so remove these things as well, these idols in our hearts, our unbridled affections, and cause us to love you anew this morning. And not only you, but our neighbor, that we might see your word take root, not only in our hearts, but in those around us. This we pray in your name. Amen. I wrote in my introduction to this morning's sermon something of uh, the poetry of Richard Baxter. Some of you may know he wrote a famous book on Reformed pastors and Reformed preaching. Uh, Richard Baxter was a disciple of John Owen, the famous English Puritan and writer. Richard Baxter was a faithful pastor, and uh, many uh, take him to be a great example, not only of uh, what ought to be said, though there were some at times... Uh, issues with his theology, 
uh, are there not with all ministers, being men themselves, uh, wrote much, and some of what he wrote was poetry. And when he was reflecting on the brevity of his life and particular health problems in his life, uh, he wrote something that is famous and well-known, uh, written by his own pen. I'm going to read it for you. I wrote it, or I included it in my email. Perhaps you read it, but for your own benefit this morning. Uh, just a section of that. This called me out to work while it was day, that is, today, and warned poor souls to turn without delay, resolving speedily thy word to preach with Ambrose I at once did learn and teach, still thinking I had little time to live, my fervent heart to win men's souls did strive. I'd preached as never sure to preach again as a dying man to dying men. Oh, how should preachers' men's repenting crave who see how near the church is to the grave? It's not unlike Jonathan Edwards, the sense of it, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Baxter was taken with the sense of his own mortal life here on earth and how near we are to the grave and that time he might climb into the pulpit to preach God's word could be the last. And so, as one who is dying, he would preach to dying men as though he would never get the chance to preach again. It's not morbid. It's just real. That at any moment our lives might be called from us. And Baxter, thinking of those who are lost in death's dark night, imprisoned to sin, sought their repentance unto life. The flourishing of saving faith. And so what we find in relationship to the heart and the marrow of the gospel that Jesus Christ came to save sinners is something that transforms our hearts. That we long to see the gospel save sinners. And so Baxter's love for preaching and his passion for the reclamation of the souls of men given and delivered unto eternal peace preached in that way. Not just the content of it, but the motivation behind it. This morning, as we continue through the opening verses of the epistle that Paul wrote to the church in Rome, we find not only theological precepts, but we find the heart of this apostle. And so this, the fourth sermon in this series, I have focused a good bit on Paul himself. Paul the apostle, called, set apart, gifted, given skill, given the, 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 the miraculous ability to heal so that his ministry might be testified to be the very ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here in this final combination of doctrine and vignette on the life of Paul, his readiness and his desire to proclaim the word of God. And why that is so. What his readiness is connected to. It is certainly connected to his call, not only to salvation, but to be an apostle. It is certainly connected to his skill, because I don't think any of us would debate Paul's rhetorical skill, his knowledge and wisdom and understanding, and all of that that was 
Well, given to him by his faithful studies of the Old Testament as a Pharisee was changed when he saw Christ on the road. And Christ said, all of this that you have learned is about me. And not only calling and skill, but a heart for the glory of Christ and a heart for the salvation of the lost. And though we are not all called to be certainly apostles, none of us today, not in the big A apostle sense, the apostolic calling of ministers is simply the faithful preaching of the apostolic word of God. But even still to those who are not called to be ministers, we are each and every one of us by the Spirit's work called to bear light to bear the truth, to be salt and light to this world that is full of darkness, that needs to hear the proclamation of the word of God. And so the question is even put to us when we see the readiness and the desire of Paul. Are we ready? Are we desirous to take the word, to send the word to every corner of this world? Two points that I want to make this morning. First, the gospel is on the move. The gospel is on the move. And then secondly, how the gospel moves. How the gospel moves. Let's look at this first point. The gospel is on the move. I cannot help but think that great example, perhaps an allegory, of Aslan's own resurrection from the dead in the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lining Witch in the Wardrobe, and how the white witch thought that she had won and all of her evil minions, and Aslan was not done wrecking the witch's world. He was raised, and from that place of resurrection power, Lewis speaks of the springtime that he brings in his resurrection. And that first thaw, because it was always winter and never Christmas in the land of Narnia, because of the evil power that the white witch had over that land. And in order for there to be spring... It had to be born out of Aslan's death and resurrection. It's a beautiful allegory. And it ought not distract us from the greater work of redemption and new life that Christ has brought to this world. A real world. Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, he being the first fruits and the firstborn of all creation has brought to an end the reign of terror on earth. You might call it the first fall of winter. And from that place of Golgotha's hill and from that place of the empty tomb, Christ has brought reconciliation. Paul later speaks or elsewhere speaks in the book of 1 Corinthians verse 15, or chapter 15 that Christ put death to death. And he put to flight the reign of Satan. He paid the price of judgment that we should have borne that judgment not from Satan, but the Father who was judge of all the earth. Christ has in his death and in his burial and in his resurrection dealt with all the problems that face the saints. Number one our being condemned in our sins before God and in our being trapped and under the influence of our great enemy, the devil. He has rescued us. 
And by his justifying act, he has brought reconciliation. And when that stone was rolled away in the Gospels, and Christ began to walk forth on this earth as a glorified person, he began to lead a train of captives in his robe. And in his death we have died, and in his resurrection, Paul says, we are raised. That is the big bang of the new covenant. It is that moment, that explosive moment of Christ coming forth from the tomb that Paul looks to as our only hope of righteousness. For if Christ is not raised, what does Paul say? Then you and I are still lost in our sins and our trespasses under the weight of God's judgment. And so we say, now winter is over, the reign of terror is coming to an end. And Christ is on the move. And wherever the word goes, green, beautiful things spring up forth from the earth. Christ is making of this wilderness a fruitful land. And by his spirit, as we saw in the book of Revelation, that pours forth from the throne upon which the Father and the Son sit, the spirit is bringing new life to the earth. It is a salvation that does not come forth from this earth. It does not come forth by some spirit God or some being reattuned to the beauty of nature. It comes from the one who made all things. And in light of Christ's work, Paul desires, Paul is ready, Paul longs to proclaim that which brings springtime and harvest and the growing triumph of Christ's own resurrection. Rome had felt that warmth. In fact, Paul speaks of those in Rome. He wants to visit Rome. Why? Because he knows of their faith. Look at verse 5. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations, for his name among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. You have been called. Verse 7, you are called to be what? Saints. What is a saint? A saint is one who is righteous, resurrected. And not only are they saints who possess faith, but their faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Now, when he says whole world, of course, what he means by that is the known world. Most likely the Roman Empire. But their faith is not a dead faith. It is not an inert faith. It is a faith that people have heard of. How have they heard of it? Well, not only do they sing very loudly when they're in church, but their lives evidence gospel fruit, and their mouths speak of Christ the dead and resurrected one. And because they have sent out missionaries into the world. They are a sending church in that regard. And that is why Paul is writing to that church. Because they are established, they are mature, and he knows 
that when he brings to them the gospel that he wishes to take to Spain, they will not be able to help saying, oh yeah, we want to go to Spain. Let's get to Spain. Let's go there. We've experienced this in the life of our own church when we have had missionaries come to us and they report of the labors that they have engaged in in foreign lands and you cannot help but go, gosh, can I go with you, please? And we do. We send our prayers. We send them financial support. Our hearts go with them. And how much more when we see them face to face? And so when missionaries come, what do they bring? Well, they bring us glad tidings from wherever they are, from Asia, from Africa, from South America, even in this country. And they bring what? What is that common, glorious doctrine that unites us, that stirs our hearts to keep going? They bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. Have you heard that before? Do you know the gospel? I know the gospel. As a, as a professional gospel knower, I better know the gospel. But every time I hear it, and not only when I hear it, but I hear of its effect in the hearts and minds of men and women and children who speak a different language, who have a different color skin, who are part of different kinds of socio-political groups, who eat different kinds of foods, foods that I might not normally eat. But I hear how the gospel unites us together. I cannot help but say, keep going. Praise God. And from the moment of Christ stepping forth from the tomb with real feet, though glorified, the gospel has not ceased in moving forth from that epicenter of resurrected glory into all the world, which is why Christ says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and then to the utter ends of the earth. And how so? By the faithful proclamation of Christ risen. And what is at the very heart of that proclamation? It is, it is the destruction of enmity, the quieting of enmity between sinful men and a holy God. In fact, Paul writes elsewhere to the Ephesian church. In Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, he speaks of the unifying work of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, not only with God, but with man. For he himself, that is Christ Jesus, is our peace, who has made both one, that is Jew and Gentile, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. That means there is not a Jewish way of salvation and a Gentile way of salvation. There is one way of salvation, the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ. Now listen. Listen. 
This is Christianity 101. But just because it is freshman level class does not mean that you can abandon it for senior, senior level dissertation. You never get to move past this. In fact, it does you well that every morning you wake up, you roll through your head the reality of Christ risen going forth into the world and that everything I do is to be part of that and in line with that. That you make the coffee in the morning like a resurrected one. And that you cook the bacon, right? You can cook bacon and you can eat it. Why? Because Christ has teared down the dividing wall of hostility. Because he went to Peter and said, what I have said is clean. Do not call it unclean. You go to your job. You go to your school. You do the work around the house. Whatever it is, wherever you go, we are those in whom the glory of the resurrection lies within our very breasts. And we say... We're ready. We desire. Why? Because Christ is on the move. The gospel is on the move. Because the gospel cannot help but be on the move. And the reason why the gospel is on the move is not only because Christ is the substance of it, but because he, along with the Father, has sent the Spirit out into the world. And the Spirit is like this running back that has the word... And he cannot be stopped. He just keeps going. And he pushes down and goes through any barrier that Satan, that demons, and that men try to erect. And the testimony of that is that you and I, 2,000 years, just 2,000 years, are a long way from Rome. Culturally, historically. How many empires have risen and fallen between then and now? How has the gospel made it to Gastonia? Because the Spirit is the one who takes it. Now, how does he take it? He calls little people like you and me to run with it. But all the while, he is the one doing that great work. That you and I are called to that glorious mission that we might walk forth with Christ from the tomb and not just stand there, but keep walking. And how many men and how many pulpits faithfully from the resurrection to now have proclaimed the glorious name of Christ and they are nothing? They are nothing. We are nothing. Now, I don't mean God doesn't love you. I don't mean ontologically you're not important. What I mean is, without the Spirit, there is no advancement. And so when Paul, who is an enemy of God, a real enemy, one who loved and longed to see Christians put to death, was converted, called granted the wisdom and the skill by Christ to go and preach, his heart was consumed with the glory and the saving grace of his Redeemer. How could he not go? One who had tasted and seen. One who was bought. One who says at the beginning of this epistle, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. He is my master. And this is how we ought to see ourselves, not unlike Paul. 
That if we have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, we are not our own. And we need to see that the mission of the new covenant church is to infect the world with the spirit of God. Through the faithful believing and rightly holding to and proclamation of the gospel. The gospel is on the move. Now, how does the gospel move? Well, I've already given it away to some degree. But the first thing that we need to know is the grace of God and the commitment of the persons of the Godhead to the filling of the world with the wisdom and knowledge of God himself. Now, Paul knew that he had been called to be a gospel bringer, a messenger of the one who died for his sins. He had been visited. He had been converted. He had tasted and seen the glorious and gracious call of his Redeemer, of Jesus Christ, and he could not resist. We call this irresistible grace. Irresistible grace is that theological term that describes when Jesus says to you, you, come to me, we don't say no. We say, yes, sir. We say, yes, master. But the reason why we are able to say, yes, master, is not out of a begrudging compulsion, I guess I'll come, like a parent dragging their kid to the doctor, What happens is he regenerates our hearts and we see as those who are imprisoned to sin, there is a way out of that prison and we flee to him because we cannot help having been given new wills to go after that chief glory and beauty and delight of our souls. Which means as saints, if ever the Christian walk feels like duty only, it is your duty to pray that God would give you delight in the midst of that in exchange for it. Now, sometimes you just do the thing you know you need to do because it is obedience. Like worship. Kids, do you feel me? Like going to church and sitting still. And oftentimes the reason we do not see the beauty in it is because we don't know what's actually happening. It just feels like another class, another thing. Let me tell you this. Worship is not Sunday school. Worship is not Bible study. Worship is not conference. The corporate worship of the saints is that unique call to come into the presence of God and Christ just lavishly dispenses with the glory of his resurrection. You've been to a parade? You know those parades where uh, you have people walking down the street and they're throwing candy to you? Now, if you're standing at the end of the parade, normally you don't get much. They're already out. That is not worship. And you ought not come to worship thinking, what's the point? Worship is that exercise, that experience, that dialogue, that exchange where Christ is heaping upon us All the glory of his redeeming work. And Christ is not stingy. He is lavish. And because Christ, when we are in his presence, 
freely offers and freely dispenses the glory and merits of his redeeming work, we ought to draw near to that power source in that place where it is dispensed. And worship is a picture of what? Our covenant fellowship with God made possible by the peace bought by his blood that was shed on Calvary. The whole of the Christian life Worship reminds us of what the whole of the Christian life looks like. Everything we have, Christ gives it to us freely. Naked, we come to him and he dresses us. We don't bring anything in our hands to, a, to him and he gives us everything we need. And we sing that, right? Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless to thee for grace. We bring nothing. Paul understood that. Now, he not only understood that existentially for himself, I am one who has been clothed by the righteousness of Christ, but there are a lot of naked, condemned, broken, damned people in Spain. And Spain is like everywhere else, isn't it? The whole world was in darkness. And so knowing the grace, Paul was committed to the glory of God and the spread of it. Now, how does it spread? Well, he actually talks about that in Romans chapter 10. In Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 10, this is what Paul writes. For with the heart, one believes unto righteousness. And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, right? Jew and Greek are both condemned, and Jew and Greek are saved by the same way. And the evidence of their faith is shown in the same way. You believe, and then you say it. You profess it. For the same Lord overall is rich, that means lavish, generous, to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How do you call if you don't know his name? Well, there are some who say, well, you just believe something sincerely enough. No. That is universalism. It is not the gospel. It is a dangerous, damnable doctrine. And there are many of those who call themselves Christians who believe it. How shall they believe... If they've not heard. And then there's the other question related to that one. How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. How will the world be brought out of darkness? The word must go. It must go forth. So that you might give to those whom God has appointed unto eternal life in the time that he has arranged in his providence to hear it, to hear that outward call and by his spirit call them inwardly and regenerate them and bring dead flesh to life. That's how it happens. And now that we know how it happens, 
We've known this, right? All along, to some degree. Let's get out there. In order for the world to be reached, then, preachers must first be themselves saved. They must be called to the ministry of the gospel. They must be trained and sent out into the world. And they must preach that life-giving word. And then they must, along with the saints who have been brought into the church of Jesus Christ, go forth and as a body and as individuals seek to bring in the harvest. That means that it is not just the minister that has a role in this. Though the primary push is led by ministers, preachers, those who are called in the apostolic office to proclaim Jesus Christ. But if you have within you the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what can you do? You can be ready to do what? To call others to believe and confess. We do this in our homes. This happens in schools. It happens in companies. It happens everywhere we go. Men and women and children are led to Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel, not of men, because it doesn't belong to me, but of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is writing to Romans and he says, I know I know what's happening to the earth now. I see what has happened in light of Christ's resurrection. He has transformed Rome. And just several decades later, Rome was transformed. It went from a place of secular pagan religion to a place where there were churches just littered over the landscape. Those who came together to worship and profess the name of Jesus Christ. And Paul was ready for that. Because he had a heart for it. Because he knew what was happening. He knew what the, the, the power and the glory of the gospel. And it's not just to Jews. And it's not just to Gentiles. It's to barbarians. Mothers, don't lose hope for your sons. It's also for barbarians. You know the kind that never use their napkin? It's for them too. It's for all men. It's for all types of men. It goes everywhere. And it just brings salvation wherever it is found. And so what then is the end of preaching this gospel? The end of the proclamation of the gospel is what Ezekiel saw in Ezekiel 47. And I've preached on this passage, and I did, right before the series on Revelation. It remains one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture because it tells us exactly what will happen when the church proclaims Christ and lives in light of his resurrection. Ezekiel writes, Then he, that's the Lord, brought me to the back door of the temple, And there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. 
For the front of the temple faced east. The water was flowing from under the right side of the temple, south of the altar. He brought me out by way of the north gate. He led me around on the outside of the outer gateway that faces east. And there was water running out on the right side. And when the man went out to the east with the line in his hand, he measured 1,000 cubits. And he brought me through the waters. The water came up to my ankles. Now, this temple is identified... As the company of saints in the book of Revelation, we are the dwelling place of God. The water is the Holy Spirit that issues forth from the church gathered. Our body, we who are covenantally united, not only in Gastonia, but throughout all the earth. This is the people of God on earth. What's happening? Well, there's a plumbing problem, obviously. There's water flowing everywhere, and it's coming out of the temple, and it's getting the ground wet. And when he begins to look, he sees the water came up to my knees. This is verse 4 of chapter 47. And again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through. The water came up to my waist. Again, he measured 1,000, and it was a river that I could not cross. For the water was too deep, water in which one must swim, a river that could not be crossed. And he said to me, Son of man, Ezekiel, have you seen this? Then he brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. When I returned there along the bank of the river were very many trees on one side and the other. Then he said to me, This water flows toward the eastern region, goes down into the valley and enters the sea. When it reaches the sea, it becomes fresh water. Its waters are healed, and it shall be that every living thing that moves wherever the river goes will live. There will be a great multitude of fish, because these waters go there. For they will be healed, and everything will live wherever the river goes. And then Ezekiel later goes on to speak of the trees that are planted by the streams of water, and its leaves are for the healing of the nations. Ezekiel sees the new covenant church. It's very different from the Old Testament church where there was a trickle. But on the day of Pentecost, Peter is preaching. And on that day, in God's sovereign wisdom, he chose that the Holy Spirit would issue forth from Jerusalem, not the temple, but from what? The apostolic gathering through the preaching of his word the tap got turned all the way on and the handle broke off and it's just been issuing forth from that point. This is what Paul wants to see. He wants to get the world wet. He wants to see the spirit unleashed upon the nations. How? By proclaiming the word of peace. By proclaiming, verse 15, to preach the gospel. So Romans is not an epistle devoted to reformed theology. It is not belong to Presbyterians. It is a book that describes the very content of the very thing that transforms the whole world. Now take it. Love it. Use it 
and be governed and guided by it. Emotionally, intellectually, it should be formative in our practice and belief. But know this, that when Paul is writing the book of Romans, Paul is speaking about that theology that transforms the whole world. And if we are left at the end of this series on the book of Romans, smarter but colder, we've done it wrong. Smarter but less caring about those who probably should read the book of Romans. No. The whole intention of Paul is to express that very thing that transforms the whole world. The question for us is this. Do we desire to see the gospel preached? And are we ready to be part of it? Let's pray. Lord.